Yeah, Nolan? Two twins. Good morning to you, nubs. Good morning, nubs. How are you? How did you sleep? Did you have any good dreams or were they nightmares? Dun, dun. <laughs> Dude, can you do that every morning? Because <laughs> that's like the most joyous. See, I'm... I, I think you and I are the same way in this way. I'm like really picky about how people greet me in the morning. Yeah. I don't like, you know, the good morning, you know, like it's gotta be, it's a unique way to do it. Yeah. To have it be the right way. It has you know? to be like, if you're going to be over the top, you got to be like sticky about it. Yes. You yeah. got to get a laugh. If you're just being annoying, then that's like, get away from me. But if you're, really over the top and you can get a little bit of a laugh or a rise out of the uh, non-morning person it, it can work it can kind of work absolutely and and i also think there's a uh, distinct difference between the effectiveness of a morning person within uh, gender so like yeah. a dude morning person is just like gets on my nerves immediately it's just like oh like what's wrong with you but like a chick morning person she's kind of you know like you said, sticky, fun, kind of bubbly. I don't know. For some reason, it's okay in that way. So <laughs> Interesting. I don't know. You know, is that almost like the difference between getting a massage from a female versus a massage from a dude? <laughs> Just like, don't want it. It's like, no. Not doing that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like, I don't know. Just a bubbly, a bubbly person in the morning just really has to do it right. Well, one one of the things I'm um, very impressed by this morning is our punctuality. You know, we said we're going to do X time and like you and I are both, I think it's fair to say we're both notoriously kind of late questionable, questionable punctuality skills for things <laughs> typically like right at X o'clock. We were like freaking on it, you know? Absolutely. It's so kind of a rarity. It's kind of a moment to take notice of, you know. I actually woke up this morning and wanted to spend a little time with today's album choice because mm. it kind of doubles as a nice morning album, too. It's one thing I noticed about it. Yeah. Kind of like can, seize the day, you know. Yeah, it can get you revved up. Well, one of the things that that'll be interesting about today and, you know, we we breathed on this in the lateralis episode two episodes ago in terms of really kind of redefining your band and redefining your approach and using a specific album to do so kind of a hard pivot type of record now lateralis i would say was a soft pivot for tool they had already been showing signs of progressive metal and time signature play and instrumentation and you know some of these things that certainly were taken up a notch in lateralis but today's album we're we're truly talking about something that was an overhaul you know and was an intentional overhaul in the way that it came across as a concept uh in the way that 
the instrumentation of that this band had kind of become noted for was completely um, turned upside down in terms of guitar work and percussive nature of things. And even vocally, you know, um, yeah, I mean, a lot more, that's you know, where I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more blending of vocal approach, uh, you know, a lot less of the formulaic kind of rap than scream stuff. And we will get all into it. But I think part of what's cool about today is this was a very polarizing record for Linkin Park fans. And I'm dying to know which side of this you came down on because I know it's a band that we both like. And it's a band that um, obviously, you know, very sadly will be no more um, after the, you know, terribly sad death of Chester Bennington you know, by suicide, which is really unfortunate. And it's one of those moments where, uh, and this happens a lot, but you feel obviously awful for whatever Chester was dealing with and for his family and friends and all that, but you feel really bad for his band, you know, because Mike and, and Brad and these guys, you know, I mean, this was their life's work. And, you know, without, this is not the type of band that can go on without Chester Pennington as part of it. And this happens from time to time, you know, when, yeah. you know, and sometimes, you know, bands have already sort of run their course a little bit or bands can pick up the pieces in some way and move on. You know, Allison Chains is a good example, similar to Typo Negative, you know, with Peter Steele and. Or even without death, like the band I always think about is Lost Prophets, who was like one of my favorite bands. Sure. And it yeah. wasn't a death, but it was this, you know, absolutely unspeakably terrible yeah. thing that the singer Ian Watkins did. And he got, you know, put in prison for most of the rest of his life. You think about the band a little bit at some point, you know, it's like these guys can no longer operate under that brand that they, to your point, took years to build. And, and they go from touring festivals to the next year, you know, having to do GoFundMes to take care of their families. I mean, right. and totally out of their own control in the same way of the Chester Bennington situation and the Peter Steele situation, you, you know, your world gets turned upside down professionally and personally. and you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they read the headlines or they hear about it and they just like, Oh, you know, too bad. No more music. Well, that, that also means huge, huge professional uh, sacrifices and really impact for mm-hmm. a lot of people. It's not just the musicians in the band. I mean, by this point, Lincoln Park was a business. You know, there were lots of people that don't appear on stage that relied on the band for their own well-being as well. So you're right. These these things have tremendous impacts and a lot of things people don't realize. Well, now I'm sad. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> well, it's a little sad, isn't it? I mean, like anytime you listen to an artist after their death, when you know that they could still be around, that they would likely, very likely still be around. Yeah. It's a little tough, you know? Well, what's interesting about, about this record is there is certainly it's pretty intense. There's certainly a concept weave throughout, but at least in my view, it's, it's, there's something uplifting about it. 
there's something uplifting creatively about a band really going for it, really pushing those boundaries, really saying, we don't just want to be formulaic anymore. And we're not sure how it's going to be reacted to. We're not sure how, what the response is going to be. But to an extent, we don't really care. We're just going to go for it. And that is part of what we will talk through in today's episode. But, 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 but let's not get there too fast now, buddy. Because first, we got to find out what has been ear round and run. Nobs, anything in the long play format that has been uh, tickling you of lately? Let's hear it, buddy. Yeah, I've been enjoying the long play format. I like the long play format. Don't you, T? Well, you know, we do. <laughs> we have done 52 episodes of our podcast about it. Why so. we're here. You know, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to choose three new releases, of course, from old artists. Because, I, you know, that's kind of my... My thing, I haven't bought a new album by a new band in quite some time, but there's lots of vintage artists that continue to pour out really fantastic material. The first is the Downs Braid Association. The album is uh, Hallison Hymns. This is Jeff Downs, who's in Yes, Was in Asia. Very, very influential and great keyboardist and songwriting. He's partnered with a Chris Braid. It's an outstanding album. It's smooth songwriting. It's a little proggy, but not over the top. And it's got great Roger Dean artwork and just really been enjoying that album. Second would be, and T, I don't know if you've heard it yet. Have you heard Intruder yet? The new Gary Newman album? Man, I've got it. And I, I just need to plow through. I'm actually going to, the next few days, I'm, I'm going away a little trip and I'm planning to absorb a lot of, of actually really good new releases. Yeah. And Intruder is one of them. How, have you plowed through yet? Absolutely. It's, it's excellent. It's a little brighter than his last several albums. And he's gotten back into, you know, he's, every once in a while he'll do this little throwback move, but he's using the same drum box sound from the album dance on a number of the tracks His 19, I think it was 1980 album. And so there's this little throwback thing. It's a little punchier, a little catchier actually. And, um, uh, Still kind of that modern Newman sound, but it's, it's got some of his best moments of songwriting and gears on it. So I've been really, really enjoying it. And thank you, Gary, for continuing to do what you do. I can't wait to see you, see you in concert uh, next fall, I believe. And then lastly would be uh, a new album from Styx, which is Crash of the Crown. Not quite as good as their previous album, The Mission, which was my album of the year that year. And it just... It was a total return to form for Sticks, but Crash of the Crown is, it really shows off the band's musicianship. You could tell they recorded it during COVID and they had a lot of time to flesh out ideas. And it, th that band just continues to get better and better. It's incredible for a group that's been around for as many decades as Sticks has, how good they still are. And if you see them live, it's, it's the same deal. They play the same set virtually every time they tour, which is sort of annoying, but Great to have new music from them and, and uh, have a band that's that amazing still continue on. And, and you can hear us talk about Sticks on, I don't remember what episode that was, T. It was somewhere, what was that, somewhere in the 20s, maybe? Yeah, it's a nice, uh, nice callback plug there. Uh, yeah, that had to be in the 20s or so when you, yeah. uh, when you took us through Pieces of Eight. Pieces of Eight, exactly. So three new albums by three not new artists. So there you go. T, what is spinning round and round for you? 
Well, the first for me, New Blaze, is Level 42. The record is World Machine, which was obviously the record they were most known for. I got to say, man, like Mark King is one of the best bass players of all time. Oh, there's no doubt. No doubt. I don't know why he's not in the conversation more. I mean, clearly, you know, Getty Lee, Claypool, Entwistle, these are all great, great players. I'm sure I just forgot like five super important ones. Uh, Jocko. Uh, let's see. What else am I forgetting? Uh, Squire flea is pretty good. Squire. Sure. But, um, at Mark King should be way, way up there in that conversation. And I mean, some you know of the what things- he, he, if you talk to hardcore bassists, he actually is. Oh, good. Okay. He is, but, but not in the mainstream, but you yeah. know, bassists always, you know, they have their own little club. Well, I want to take Mark King mainstream. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. No, but, love but, it. but, you know, it, it, he's incredible. I mean, he's incredible and he sings while he does. I mean, it's, it's really, it's very Getty esque in terms of, Okay, how does he do that and sing at the same time? Um, a lot of pop, a lot of slap uh, action to his playing. Really impressive stuff. I mean, shoot, just go on YouTube and watch a Level 42 live. I was just going to say, go to YouTube and you'll be, your eyes will pop out of your head. It's like, whoa, this guy's amazing. And he like was the band. You know, the other guys were good support, but it was, Mark King was the sound. Indeed. Uh, the second is is another band with an unheralded player, and that's Baroness, uh, the Purple Record, which is, I think, all in all my favorite from those guys. But, you know, you got Sebi on drums, and and I think he's one of the finest out there. Um, very unique drummer, but uh, love Seb. Love how he wears those giant gold chains while he plays <laughs> the drums. And he does that with Baroness, too, right? Like, I... I thought yeah, that was just a Trans Am thing, but does he do it with Baroness too? I think, yeah, I think he always does it. It's great. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the biggest goddamn chain you've ever seen. I mean, it's <laughs> like so huge. I don't know how he plays with it. It's so funny. That uh, was the last great Baroness album too. And I'm glad he was I on agree. it, but I, I did not care for the last one at all. I think it was gold and gray. I yeah. The colors confused, but purple was exceptional but yeah i'm i'm concerned baroness might not make another great album yeah i kind of agree and then the third you know in that same sort of genre is uh barry manilow's self-titled record which we talked about this a little bit in the manilow episode but this is his pop record and yeah. i'll tell you what man i just love it i i think these are great songs really really well performed well produced and I, I love the yellow self-titled with kind of the weird feminine looking picture of Barry on the front. <laughs> well, and it's got could it be magic on it. So that helps. I mean, no, I'm you, talking about I'm talking about the one from the 90s. Like the. the oh, the, the, oh, pop, the other that Manilow. It's yeah, the, the, the album Manilow. title is Manilow. Yeah, oh, the pop okay. record. Yeah, yeah. So it's Manilow. not self-titled. Yeah, I, I got it. Well, OK. Fair I, enough. Fair yeah. Enough. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the first. The you know Barry Manilow one so we, uh, now right. I, I think oh. you've had that around and around before you must listen to that endlessly love that album <laughs> love that album it's, it's so a long good. way I, up the closer it's a long way up great close I mean you know in search of love I mean these are great songs you know it's only, a long way up when you come it's a long such a long way up you gotta push a little harder it's very you inspiring know, it's well very inspiring. it's olympics time we'll talk about this yeah, on, right. on one of the tracks with uh that's right. album today. but you get it sounds it's a long way up could be one of those nbc olympics montages you know yeah kind of like uh that remember that olympics uh soundtrack 
in the eighties. Oh with, yeah. Uh, one moment like, in time, one moment in time. And then that, yeah. uh, four top song, hot too hot and a storm we can weather. You, you and I, I, we become united forever. Two hearts that can beat as one. There ain't a single thing. We, we can, can overcome. overcome. We're, We're indestructible. Indestructible. We got the power of love. So strong, we can generate all the sun and love. Nothing can penetrate. We're indestructible. Indestructible. Man, it's so good. Just makes you want to just go run through a brick wall, doesn't it? Don't you wish people could have seen us perform yeah. that arms flailing and fist yeah. pumping? And we were, I mean, come on. So true. We were, we were way into it there. My way voice is, it. my voice is gone now. I'm sorry. These are those moments you wish it was a video pod, especially Nubs has a <laughs> Nubs has like the bam, bam thing going on top of his head. He's got his hair pulled up into a sort of top. Yeah. Pebbles. Tail. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a white? You think he's a white? like little hair tie. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So him with that style hairstyle, really getting into it on indestructible by the four tops, you know, yeah. you just can't beat that. It's really, Why don't we, yeah. Well, now that that's out of the way, let's get to those nerdy dates. What do you think? You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right. A thousand sons was released on September 10th, 2010. This was Linkin Park's fourth studio album. And much like its predecessor, which was called Minutes to Midnight, this was produced by Rick Rubin and Mike Shinoda. And I don't know, I'm I'm not sure how, I mean, Mike was, I think, always a co-producer on all their records. So I've always wondered kind of what his direct impact was on these two albums typically with rick rubin you know he kind of mans the ship so um i'm not sure how collaborative the production was but clearly um a lot of people forget that rick rubin had this run with lincoln park but obviously two of their more layered and certainly um in this case their most experimental album not terribly surprising that you had somebody like rick rubin at the helm as we said from the onset, this was a very polarizing release for fans. Uh, critics, for the most part, liked it. There were a few that thought it was kind of melodramatic bunk, but for the most part, it was very critically acclaimed. Half the fans loved it. Half the fans hated it. Can't wait to see where you land, Nubbins. It is a concept album uh, that obviously debuted a lot of new sounds, a lot of new approaches, and a lot of new... Uh, experimentation and you know the themes kind of tackle technology and uh, nuclear war and social issues in fact speaking of nuclear war the title a thousand sons actually came from robert j oppenheimer who was the head of the manhattan project in the 40s which basically you know sparked the development of the atomic bomb and uh, the the legend has it that uh, 
that when Oppenheimer and his team of physicists sort of deployed this A-bomb for the first time, which I think was out in the middle of New Mexico somewhere, um, that he actually, the first thing he said was a, was a line from a Hindu scripture. Apparently he was, well, when he wasn't creating atomic bombs, he was really into Hindu scripture. So this is, this is not legend. Actually, he was one of the most peaceful men you would ever see. That's yeah. one of the great ironies. I mean, Robert Oppenheimer did not set out to create something that would <laughs> destroy the world. He set out to do something extraordinary in science. So well, I mean, a, listen, you, you think you're well-rounded. I mean, come on. <laughs> right, yeah. um, <laughs> you actually hear his voice, Oppenheimer's voice on the track Radiance. So, you know, obviously a big sort of theme of not just the title, but the kind of overall concept of the record. Uh, it was commercially very successful, as was, you know, to your point, Nubs, you said it perfectly. Lincoln Park was a business at this point. They were going to debut at number one. They, they did with this record in over 10 charts. They were all over the U.S. Billboard um, charts on this one. So, you know, regardless of the fact that it was a bit of a change in direction, it kind of shows where the band was at, you know, at this time. They were hugely popular. They were the type of group that you could hear on a top 40 station. You could hear on a uh, rock station. You could hear on a metal kind of ish station. And you could also hear, um, as we've noted with a few previous bands, at the uh, gentlemen's uh, establishment club. Yeah, I guess so. More like the hybrid theory stuff. Sure. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know, but I. I reckon you've heard. Yeah, I reckon that their material has been, uh, you know, showcased um, in such a format. Another thing too is it was showcased at you know any concert venue near you twice a year. I mean, this band toured very aggressively, uh, certainly for the first few years of its career. I don't know how that tapered off later, you know. And and some of this music would be much harder for them to pull off live, you know. Even starting with Minutes to Midnight, I remember my first experience with that album was that they did like a Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live appearance and you could tell that the music was more challenging to pull off live than let's say paper cut or points of authority or one step closer you know right. and so i i wonder or in the end in the well, end yeah in the end absolutely. you know what speaking of in the end you okay. know like we haven't well i guess we did perform <laughs> we, we just yeah, performed. We, we performed you're probably out of voice but can we give a little in the end, just, just to everybody, just to give them a little, little breakfast this morning. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, listen, you, you want, how about you do the rap and I'll do the singing. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. So you know, that line things aren't the way that you, can we start there? Yeah. That might be the only voice I have left after our Barry yeah, Manilow. Exactly. Uh, I'm gonna take it easy. Four well, tops well, thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's see if we can, let's see if we can do this. I don't know. This might be a disaster as usual, but you know. All right, you ready? Here we go. Okay. okay. All right, here we go. Okay, here we go. There. Things aren't the way they were before. You wouldn't even recognize me anymore now that you knew me back then. But it all comes back to me in the end. You kept everything inside. And even though I tried, it all fell apart. What it meant to me will eventually be a memory of a time when I tried, I tried so hard. so hard and got so far. But in the end, it doesn't even 
one <laughs> oh my goodness that that takes it out of your voice man i don't oh know my goodness. how he did that how did he do that night. i know i know in the end oh like and like the other thing too that? he was not you know a lot of these guys will find a way to do that in a soft, they, they use their deep voice and they're, they're essentially yelling, but they do it in a way that the volume isn't that high. The microphone takes over and they're able to protect some of their voice. He was not doing that. Like he was no. letting it fly every time you could yeah. tell yeah, he's opening it's... up his throat and going. And like, I don't know how he would be able to talk the next day, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, some of those guys, they just have a, a gift for that sort of thing. But, uh, Lastly, I would note is it was kind of a early ish example of a band really utilizing video games to promote their songs. They actually had a couple of tunes, the catalyst most notably featured in a couple of video games, even before the album was released. So, you know, kind of, uh, again, you could, this was 2010, certainly the tide had already shifted to digital in a lot of ways but the tide was starting to shift as far as how you need to promote your music and how you need to promote a a release and you started to see you know rock band and you started to see a lot of these different ways that bands were utilizing non-traditional and unique methods to kind of get the word out there about their songs or their new records or, or showcase particular songs in that format. So kind of an early example of that nubs. Let's get to your wonder story. Nubs, do you recall your, you know, first time, you know, late last time, middle time you know that you interacted discuss you know discovered saw this band live what's your lincoln park wonder story buddy i recall some of those things this is a definitely a college band for me i mean hybrid theory came out in 2000 that would have been my sophomore year at the ohio state university so yeah this not a good football not a good football school no no we struggle yep we struggle in those areas no doubt not good but uh can't wait for this season by the way but this album um was a good fit for midwest audiences and did very very well almost from the beginning this was one of those that you'd hear blasting out of people's dorm rooms you know virtually for an entire year what really got me was the first time i saw them live was sometime that year the next year i saw them in some sort of package tour in columbus and uh, their live set was pretty stunning. It was, you know, it was very energetic, very passionate. You had the two vocalists, which I'm always a sucker for. And you kind of saw that this band had these two leaders, you know, like Chester led in one way and Mike led in one way. But I was also really impressed by the other guys in the band, you know, and, and I know that hindsight has given Chester a lot of attention and Mike has gone on to be very influential in the music business, but I was super impressed with Brad Delson, the guitarist, yeah. you know, yeah. and still am. I just love the way he played. 
And I thought Rob Borden was a really good drummer. I thought he, he paced things really well and he played well. Like he complimented electronic rhythm tracks really well, which is not easy for a drummer. But I remember Delson in particular, I was like, okay, th- this dude plays differently. And he, you know, wore the headphones, <laughs> just something visually about him. That was cool. So seeing them live was big. And then, you know, like I said, when Meteora came out, I was kind of in, fell off a little bit near the end of, of the band's run. And we'll talk about that as we get into this album. But uh, I, I always found them to be at the very least one of, if not the most interesting bands in the mainstream during this early 2000s. If you weren't at least interested in Lincoln Park, then you, you probably weren't that into music or at least into things that pushed genres and pushed boundaries. So uh, yeah, that was kind of my Lincoln Park story. I just remember more than anything else live, how visually stunning they were and how, and how good they sounded. They were a really, really good sounding live band. You know, I, one of the times I did see him was at the, uh, summer sanitarium tour that was the second time i saw this is when metallica puts together a a traveling circus yeah and it was at the silverdome which is no longer and (laughs) this was on meteora and i remember thinking well this band has just grown so much between the two years or three years or whatever it was that i last saw them i'm sure there were no shenanigans that there were never shenanigans at the pontiac silverdome that was a real that was a classy classy place yeah (laughs) classy venue that place was nuts. You know, ironically though, it was more it was more dangerous for a Lions game than it was for yeah. a Metallica concert. That's so you were true. you were more likely to get in a fight during the third quarter of the Lions getting beat by the Broncos thirty seven to three than you were at you know Metallica uh, Limbiscuit at the Summer Sanitarium with Fred Durst trying to stir everyone into a frenzy. You know? Truer words have never been spoken, my good man. That lineup was pretty incredible. It was Metallica, Limp Biscuit, Lincoln Park, Mudvayne, and Deftones. <laughs> like, just think about that lineup. Jeez. First of all, it was incredible. I mean, it was one, you know, great band after another. Yeah. But you look back and it's like, wow, Metallica really, this was on St. Anger. And it was like, they really were trying to reinvent themselves, you know? Except um, for Mudvayne, of course. I know the rest. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm Love totally kidding. Mudvayne. Love kidding. Mudvayne. I know. I'm kidding. Love Mudvayne. Uh, T, what, uh, <laughs> what's your wonder story with Lincoln Park? Honestly, you know, my, my, uh, I never got to see him live, which actually bums me out. But um, my sort of main memory and story around Lincoln Park actually comes related to this album, which was my album of the year, admittedly, in 2010, full disclosure. Um, but yeah, my, I wonder where you're going to put this one on the final cut. Well, you never know. You, you never know. know you never know. You threw me for a loop by, you know, collecting dust on lateralis. So you never know where these things land, right? Throw it for a loop. Throw it for a loop. Exactly. Um, so my, uh, was she my wife or girlfriend? At, let's see. This was September 2010. <laughs> oh, we had like just gotten married. We were married for like a month, you know? Yeah. So we were, you know, we were still like, you know, liking each other and having a good <laughs> enjoying each other's company. Yeah, that's right. And we, uh, this was back when, uh, Saturday night live was pretty good. And I was a regular watcher and Lincoln park was on SNL, uh, it had to be right around this time. And they played two songs. I'll mention what they are when we get to them off this record. And this was as SNL was starting to change 
kind of the visual approach of its music guests where they were doing a lot of production and a lot of um effects and elements Camera and tricks yeah, yeah and yeah. some of that was cool like i remember kanye west played one time and it was really cool but then they 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 kind of took that and started doing it with a lot of different bands and sometimes it was all right and sometimes it was like you know can't we just watch the band like do we have to like make it all produced yeah whatever that was always the cool thing about bands being on Saturday Night Live was it was sort yeah. of raw and they were playing live, but you're right. They, eventually yeah. they caught the same bug everybody else did, which is like, we need to create our YouTube moment. You know? Yeah. And they've ruined many things, I think, within that show. But this was kind of early on in that part. Now, they did that on this appearance, but what they did is they basically put Linkin Park all in black and white. And it was really cool. Um you know, it's so they didn't like put a bunch of weird effects and lights and stuff. They they basically just put the band in black and white and it's very hazy kind of view, um, which actually fit really well. And I had never heard these two songs before. The album had either just come out or it was just about to come out. And I was watching it, you know, with who had just become Mrs. T. So she's probably sitting there all regretful and miserable, you know, <laughs> you know wondering yeah. what, what the hell she did with her life. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And Lincoln Park came on and played their first song. And then we watched the rest of the show and then they played their second song. And I kid you not, like right when they finished their second song, we both like looked at each other and basically at the same time, we were like, can we rewind this and watch Lincoln Park again? And we watched it three times. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but watching, you know, let's see, carry the two, six. So it'd be six performances, three songs times two, six. There you go. Um, kind of in one sitting because you liked it so much is pretty rare. But I remember distinctly. Well, and, we, and, and plus for Mrs. T, who probably spent most of the day listening to the Rent soundtrack. Yes. I mean, that says right. a lot that she was so, you know impressed by what she saw that's exactly right and so and and i'm telling you she was just as enthused as i was it was like wow that was incredible and very memorable because then i you know got the album and it was like yeah these songs really are even better in their recorded format and then if it of course became my album of the year in 2010 so it's one of those like even you know obviously concerts are concerts but you even sometimes have these uh, you know, not not to compare it to like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or anything, but you have these TV performances that you always remember too. And I remember live, we talked about Nirvana live and loud all the way back in episode Uno. We talked about that one. And certainly there have been television performance moments that are classic and important, right? And nothing's like going to see a band live, but you know, there are moments that become very memorable. Lincoln Park on SNL uh, playing these songs from A Thousand Sons is one of those for me. Just extremely memorable. We, we Rewinding it and watching it three times uh, was uh, pretty neat. I don't think I've ever done that before for a band. Even, even my favorite bands that have played on TV. It was just a very striking, very compelling performance. And I think the fact that they were doing something that was so unique um, to what you'd anticipate from Lincoln Park was a big part of that. But always wish I could have seen him live, but we'll always remember that. Uh, and it's on Venmo or YouTube or something. So if you 
haven't checked it out, go back and do it. It's well worth the watch. Nub, you ready to get down into it? Let's drop the needle, man. All right, so this one's a little peculiar. There are a lot of tracks, um, as we did as recently as the the Tool record, and we've done it a few other times, that are uh, more true to the concept uh, that aren't actual songs. They're spoken words in some po- at some points. They're you know kind of thematic to the overall progression and concept of the record in some cases, but. We're just going to stick to the songs. Now, there are nine actual songs on the record. Now, a quick review of the kind of more spoken tracks. This would be The Requiem, The Radiance, Empty Spaces, Jornada del Muerto. I'm sure I butchered that. uh, Wisdom, Justice, and Love. And then a track called The Fallout. Now, with here, you see everything from one features, as I mentioned before, you know, spoken word from Robert J. Oppenheimer. Another features kind of this cadence and theme from a later song called The Catalyst that's more spoken by a female voice. You hear a speech by Martin Luther King uh, during one of the later tracks. Um, you hear Shinoda on the vocoder a couple times. So, you know, it's it's a variety. None of them are too long. I actually think it's pretty tasteful and it's um, unlike the tool ones where sometimes you just want to flip through them as fast as you can. If you're absorbing a thousand suns as a whole, I actually think taking in these tracks is kind of okay, even though there are quite a few of them, but we'll obviously stick to the nine songs. The first of which is burning in the skies. one's really led by you know a, a chester vocal and certainly on this record you get a lot more pure singing from chester than you do screaming as he had typically done more so in the past now he had already started to prove himself as a very melodic singer but you get a lot more of kind of a soft vocal approach from him and certainly you get that right away here on burning in the skies i think you know, right away, you get a sense that rhythmically, this is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and even, even in its textures, particularly the guitar layer, you know, this is more of kind of a, a sort of a low gainy, you know, tube screamer type guitar treatment rather than a high gain guitar riff that you kind of typically got with Linkin Park. So it takes till track three, I think it is, to actually get to Burning in the Skies, but it is the first song on the record. Dubs, how do you feel about the way this one kicks off? So, you know, I'm glad you did all the interludes in one because they, they're part of the album. They're part of the journey. There's a lot of them, right? I do like the way that they package an album, but it takes you a little while to get to, to your point to this first real song. It's got a nice driving backbeat. You're you're hearing this new vocal style from Chester, still aggressive, but much less of the throaty screaming and more of the melodic sort of singing. They got into this. It's certainly not festival rock at all. I don't want to corner it into that sound, but it is a little bit more that thump, that sort of thing where everything's got to have this driving thumping deal, pacing it. And 
you know, that became a little bit formulaic at times. What I like about it is the melody. And I like the melodic aspect of it. I think that, and that's a trademark of this album. You know, you mentioned earlier, does the whole thing get a little melodramatic at times? And this song plays its role in that as well. But it's a nice way to kick things off and show that this album is going to be, you know, something a little bit different, even when you compare it to Minutes to Midnight, which was different, of course. Yeah. One of the things a lot of people have kind of gone back and done, and, and you know, we're not big, big lyric guys, but if you go back and revisit, including some of the things Chester's saying on Burning in the Skies, it's, you know, it's a little sad. I mean, you can, you can oftentimes hear him kind of crying out that, you know, for help. And I, I don't know how many people were familiar with how much he needed help or, you know, how much he was struggling, but, you know, it's almost a little eerie to go back and, and kind of listen to some of those, um, some of that lyrical output from him. But it's really difficult to match the kind of uh, emotional output of a, you know, Chester Bennington vocal when he's really into it. And the screaming's great. You get a little bit of that, you know, throughout A Thousand Suns. But I think we're really kind of starting to hear kind of that that softer voice um, in that approach that, you know, perhaps the band was wanting to go a little bit more long term, you know, here right away from the onset. All right. Well, speaking of rhythmic, uh, let's get into one of the SNL songs that I noted earlier. This was actually the second one they played. And this is When They Come For Me. Nubs, uh, you know, you can kind of get a sense for, um, you know, the how and and why this sort of caused us to hit the rewind button because this was their second performance. And after this one, it was like we were like stunned. Um, the live presentation of this, I'm sure they did it the same way in their concerts, was really impressive. They were all on drums. Uh, except for Mike and and Mike was playing that little bit of um, sort of keyboard effect and then obviously stepping out for the main sort of rap piece during the verses. But, you know, Chester was drumming and singing. Brad was drumming. So they kind of, you know, wheeled out this percussive presentation on stage and it was extremely cool and extremely, you know, well reproduced, not an easy song to to reproduce. But I think this is just an incredible high point on the record. Um, for, especially with it being basically track two, now you're really realizing that you're getting something unique and different. And, you know, this is a song that I could probably listen to, uh, you know, daily and not get sick of where's it land for you. I absolutely love this song, you know, and it's got the anthemic chorus without being anthemic, right? You don't feel like it's cheesy or anything like that. It's amazing how every band seemingly <laughs> at some point ends up in like a tribal rhythmic fascination, (laughs) you know, every band or every artist seems to sort of at some point get there. And this is certainly that. So you're taking that idea of a driving backbeat, but you're adding in this tribal aspect to it. That is really cool. It's something that you kind of sink into as a listener. And and that's, that says a lot because it could could be seen as a little bit overdone because we've seen this movie before where a band kind of gets into tribal beats and goes in that direction. But 
the way they do it with the voices is really cool. One of the things that stands out, I think this is one of two tracks where you can kind of feel, especially on first listen, that like it's going to be a, a Mike Shinoda song <laughs> and you're just waiting for it. And then you just hear him go, yeah, yeah before, before he starts. His first. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that. I think, and I think he's done that on many Lincoln Park songs, but you, you know, do, 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 ba-doom, bum. yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like oh. he's walked in the room. Hey everyone. Yeah. 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 One of the things, and, and obviously you saw a full show live, but you know, but between clips and those things, I, I tried to get a pretty good idea of what these guys were like live, but Mike Shinoda had a good time playing this music. I, one of the things I love, you know, I love when, Bands can play intense music and be very passionate about their work, but also have a good time with it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's sort of like when you see, um, you know, a uh, professional basketball player that's like miserable. It's like, dude, you get to go out and get paid to play basketball all the time. Like, give me a break. Put a smile on your face. There's an element of that with music. Where, and again, not everything is as easy as it looks, but where it's like, you know, have a good time. You know, I mean, you're performing for fans that are into it. You're performing music that you can tell you're very connected to and very passionate about. Like, smile and enjoy yourself. And I always loved how Shinoda genuinely seemed to enjoy the process. Part of what makes it heartbreaking that sort of got taken away from him in a way. But I always loved his energy, you know, and his sort of positivity while also being aggressive at times and intense at times uh, musically. It helped. It's an awesome take. It helped you connect with him. Chester was tough to connect with because you could just tell there was the, uh, the anger was a little too real, you know, And, and that's what made him such an amazing artist. But Mike brought this, this light you know, to everything, this sort yeah. of more fun side to it. He kind of had the perma smile going on and, and I think he liked his job. You know, he never got that vibe from Chester, but I think Mike and the rest of the band, frankly, enjoyed their work. And that's, you know, I don't care whether you, you know, work in a factory or you're a touring musician, you're going to be more engaging if you enjoy your work. People are going to notice that and they're going to like it. And so I, I love the take. I think it's totally right. He, he would have been the guy who seemed like it would have been fun to hang out with and, and extremely yeah. artistic, right? I mean, he's, he's got creative vision. He's got all the things that go into being a, a, you know, an outstanding musician, but also just seemed like kind of a fun dude, you know? Well, there are some great moments on the solo record he put out. Um, it was a couple of years ago. Now it shows that, you know, he knows what he's doing as well. And, uh, and check that out if you haven't heard. It's good to good to support him on the on the solo front. I haven't heard it. I will check it out. These guys certainly proved on this record, really more so than they had before, that they could uh, even with their different vibes that they could blend voices, and that happens uh, pretty effectively here on Robot Boy. bit more theatric here you know this is perhaps a little bit more festival rocky but you know this is this is 10 years ago i mean this is not a a a band sort of jumping onto a trend this is you know 
previous to a lot of these sounds being developed and certainly something you wouldn't expect from this band. But boy, after this sort of driving tribal rhythmic punching nature of when they come for me, things really smooth out here from Robot Boy. I love that kind of one-two punch uh, of, of different tempos and different kind of vibes and sort of the swirling nature of robot by i think is uh extremely cool gorgeous song and i you, you nailed it one two punch i was i was gonna say that if you didn't there's something about the way these two songs kind of run parallel to each other in the sequence this is lincoln park becoming a band that dabbles in the beautiful which was not the case in hybrid theory and i have to say probably not a meteor either maybe a different kind of beauty you started to see it with like Shadow of the Day uh, and on Minutes to Midnight, but this takes it to a whole new level. I mean, this is, is kind of a glorious melody. They're singing together in great harmony. I never saw them do this song live, but hopefully they were able to pull it off somewhat well if they performed it. But uh, it's amazing that, you know, if you saw them in hybrid theory, you would have never guessed, hey, these guys could blend together with pretty sweet vocals and have it work. Well, it... <laughs> They definitely proved over time that it would work. So Robot Boy, definite pinnacle of the album for understandable reasons. It's gorgeous. It's uplifting. You know, they're, this band's able to achieve some kind of hopeful moments for a band that's usually as aggressive as they are. That was a, a pretty big sea change and one that got your attention for sure in 2010. Well, it, it takes you to the next track, which certainly uh, got a lot more people's attention. This was one of the more successful uh, singles from the group. And this was the first song as part of the SNL performance. So this is the one that kind of made you say, wow, that's really good. And then you heard when they come for me and you're like, okay, let's hit the rewind button. This is waiting for the end. So again, you know, rhythms, um, groove, blending vocals during these verse sections. It's kind of rap, but it's also sort of just more of kind of a choppy blended vocal. It's very effective. You know, that chorus hook from Chester is an outstanding vocal, but but over a beautiful progression. Um, I think waiting for the end is really really good and and at this point boy you're starting to say god these guys really you know sort of worked hard at not just the composition here but the layering and the way they wanted this to sound and i think uh waiting for the end is just yet another high point what do you think nub so yeah this is where the melodrama gets to me it's first of all it's incredibly poppy you know just in the chorus it, it's and I don't want to knock a band for being poppy, particularly one like Lincoln Park, which avoided that for so much of their material. But this, this gets a little too cinematic in its attempt to be dramatic, right? And, and it, it sort of loses me during this song. I think it has to do with, too, how, how amazing the previous couple tracks are. But by this point, this feels like a Taylor Swift song that Lincoln Park decided to cover. <laughs> You know, and, and that's not for me, that's not what I enjoy about Lincoln Park's music. So th- this is where that um, 
it, it gets a little melodramatic. Yeah, you know, cr- critically, a lot of the um, sort of gripe on the record was that there were moments that were a bit melodramatic, and and I get that um, sort of from the overall vibe of it. But you know, the 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 dichotomy of the verses and the chorus of "Waiting for the End" I just think really work well. Nubs, you don't have to worry about this one being uh, performed by Taylor Swift. This is Blackout. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, you know, it's almost like they kind of said, well, Chester hasn't screamed yet, so let's just have him go absolutely ballistic here on Blackout. I think musically there's some cool stuff going on, right? I mean, it's this is definitely a bit more electronica, um, but there's that nice sort of keyboard melody. You can tell that that Shinoda is kind of all over this one. You know, I don't know. It's 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 unique on the record. It certainly is one that uh, I, I think was made to say. Okay, we we took you in a little poppy direction on waiting for the end. You know, we still want to remind you all that we're able to be aggressive, but certainly away from the typical sort of Lincoln Park formula here and into something where, you know, whether it's Chester's aggressive vocal or this, you know, sort of more aggressive form of electronica, it's certainly something different. So thoughts on Blackout? Can't stand it, man. Can't even listen to it. It's first of all, it's missing guitars. Like if you want to do the loud Lincoln Park thing and have Chester scream, then have Brad Dalson, you know, play some chunky riffs and get some guitars in there. It sounds like a Brian Eno mixed with, you know, the Bee Gees mixed with Slayer. And what's wrong with any of those guys? (laughs) Love them all. Of course. (laughs) You know, there's, there's a tipping point with being eccentric. And I think blackout is the point where you think, Okay, this album started with this musical theme. It's attempting to have cohesion with its interludes and, and this sort of story, whatever it may be, that seems to be being told musically and maybe lyrically. But there's a flip side to being eccentric where it's like, okay, where does this fit in? And it feels like a crowbar trying to, to your point, you're right, get Chester's screaming in there. And I just, I just don't. It's just so abrasive. It's so abrasive without any guitars to try and take these kind of pretty keyboard melodies and just have him like wail over the top of them. You know, I'm not one who's against screaming. You know that. Listen to a ton of metal. Love electronic music. But there's something about the mismatch that's going on here that's just over the top eccentric. Yeah, there's certainly uh, the, the, the guitar usage on this record is, is part of what caused some polarization, right? Because a lot of people feel, you know, that Brad's guitar contributions were always so important to this group. And you can tell that there was an intentional, you know, sort of means of getting away from some of that. Now, he's very creative, obviously. And, you know, musically, you always kind of respect in a way uh, wanting to sort of get away from your core. But certainly a lot of, you know, complaints from a lot of fans were that, you know, hey, Brad, don't don't put your guitar away just for the sake of it a lot who kind of perceived this record in more of the change for the sake of change or melodramatic reason certainly had that gripe onto a track that uh, Shinoda notes is a bit of a tribute to public enemy in a lot of ways here with wretches and Kings. The button, the whole thing, 
So this has, you know, actually, structurally, Wretches and Kings kind of has the Linkin Park formula, but it's with a completely different dress on it. You know, obviously, again, more electronica, um, more of a little bit of a rhythmic sort of hip hop approach to it. So you're actually getting this back and forth thing, but it's in a sort of more, I guess, modern per Linkin Park standards way. It's got some gimmicks from a production standpoint. You're right. If you took out the gimmicks, it pretty much would be your standard Linkin Park song with the back and forth and everything. I like the treated guitars. You know, we just talked about not enough guitar and it's true. I do like, I think the treated guitars are key. You take those away and, and the song takes on a different life. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's more Mike's vision than anything else. And I think Chester does a good job of complimenting that. And if you're, if you're kind of into Mike and you're buying in, then, then you can get behind this track because to your point, it's, it still sounds like Linkin Park and there's that compliment, you know, the public enemy thing is interesting. I I don't know if he means that from a lyrical perspective or a musical perspective, but I think that this, um, I think mostly lyrical, but you know, you never know with Mike, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm not a huge fan of like the dub reggae sort of thing that's going on vocally in Chester's part. It sounds like he's trying to have that vibe and it comes across a little bit unauthentic, but from a pure song structure standpoint and with the treated guitars, I ended the song works. It's Mike, man. You know, it's MC Mike <laughs> Shinoda, baby. Yeah, indeed. We have three more tracks and uh, that kind of round out and really, I-, I think kind of fill out the thematic of the record. So you get some of this stuff during the prelude, you know, during Requiem and Radiance. Uh, where you're kind of teeing up some of the conceptual parts of the record. And I think that here at the end, uh, with these last, you know, in the end, I should say, no pun intended, with these last, uh, you know, three tracks, you're sort of getting a little bit of an epilogue to this overall thematic. And that kind of begins here with Iridescent. It's, uh, it's poppy, it's anthemic, but boy, it's got a lot of feeling, uh, nubs very, very much intrigued. I, I, to this point, you, your reactions have pretty much been in line with what I was thinking they were going to be this one. You know, I always have those couple where I'm particularly interested. This is one of those. I have no idea. You could say that you love this. You could say that you hate this. Where do you, where do you land? It's neither. I really, I like it. It's Chester. Oh, at I was his wrong. Best. I was wrong again. <laughs> yeah. It's Chester at his best. It's got polish on it. It is a little bit poppy, but it's not as like overtly Taylor Swifty as, you know, what we talked about earlier. This, this song has a lot more genuine feeling to it. I love the passion behind it. I think it's a simple song. I like that. But Chester is mixing his voice up in a way that shows his range without being overwhelming. And it's got that hopeful feel. When this album is at its best, it's hopeful without taking it a little bit too far. And I think this song fits in very, very well with that. So to me, this is one of those late album gems that 
you know, kind of brings you back to, oh yeah, this, this record is doing some things that are pretty marvelous. I think that's a good take. You know, they, they probably struggled at times to make sure, cause it is a very genuine artistic group, right? These, these are not just a bunch of kind of metalheads that want to go out there and start mosh pits. I mean, these guys definitely had an artistic and uh, in some cases, emotional, you know, statement that they wanted to get across. And at some points, it was probably a little bit difficult to ensure that that balance was being met properly. But I agree with you on Iridescent. I think that they really, they really find it uh, with the backdrop of a, of a very beautiful melody. And I think a, a, an extremely well-produced song as well. Well, the second to last track is actually the first single off the record. This is the one that was, you know, very heavily utilized in a lot of the uh, sort of digital promotion and video game promotion and those type of things that you saw early. And this really does kind of pull the uh, thematic that you're getting at the very beginning together with The Catalyst. So this, you know, God bless us, everyone, is what you get in the uh, spoken word, you know, uh, female voice intro in uh, Requiem. So it really does kind of bookend the overall thematic. Uh, again, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty anthemic and you get, um, you know, the the voice blend kind of working together in a way that's um, pretty energetic. And, you know, uh, the catalyst certainly was their decision to kind of have as a lead single. So uh, it, it does seem to pull together the musical themes and the conceptual things of the album kind of in that one, you know, second to last track um, and really kind of the last I would consider collective song since the, the final one is really just an acoustic and vocal um, to sort of take you home. but. The catalyst, I think, kind of pulls things together rather appropriately, both musically and conceptually. Yeah, it, it's it's the comprehensive track. I think you nailed it. It it sort of brings the whole thing together. I'm always intrigued by the lead single being near the end of the album. You know, it, it's always a good sign that a band is being yeah. really thoughtful about their sequence because that is so not typical. Then again, by 2010, you know, everything was different. But I like the catalyst for kind of the whole package. You know, just the top to bottom vocal melody is strong. It's got some nice dynamics to it, nice rhythms to it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the quintessential part of the album. If you wanted to say, Hey, like what does 10,000 suns sound like? I would probably choose the catalyst because it's got some of the pretty moments. It's got some of the harder moments and, and all the instrumentation seems to be there. The band seems to be all involved, which is good. That's not the case in every one of these songs. So I think the catalyst does its job for sure. No doubt about it. Well, that's certainly not the case here. You go from something that's extremely layered, extremely produced to a closer that, you know, you could hear Chester and Brad perform sitting in the corner of a pub uh, because it's an acoustic and a vocal and it's the messenger. It's, 
It's an awfully peculiar closer. Now, it's basically like a song that like uh, like a high school band could have written. It's, you know, basic major minor chords, but obviously the vocal performance here is is not something that just anybody could have performed. So, it's interesting. I I'm not exactly sure what the thinking was. I mean, the album could have easily ended with the catalyst. So there's this element of it where I think it's cool and different and unexpected. And it's, and it's a tremendous vocal from Chester, no matter what you think of the song. And then there's an element of like, Hmm, like why, you know? So, but you know, again, these guys were doing things in a little bit of a different direction and very interesting way to close a thousand suns. Interesting is the right word. You know, there's uh the band does thrive on unpredictability. You always wonder when somebody, you, you said it well earlier, change for the sake of change, or are you really doing something artistically that comes from a really authentic place? You know, why were they changing? Why were they keeping their audience so far off balance? It's hard to say. You'd have to talk to the guys to know, but I will say that this song keeps you off balance because it's exactly what you would not expect. I like the song. I love the performance. I think it's a terrific performance. And it's really unique to the Linkin Park catalog. But it does make you think. It's like, when does unpredictability become predictable? You know, for a band that thrived on keeping everybody on their toes, you just wonder at what point did it become too much? You know, but boy, that was such a wise question you asked it, you know, about unpredictability. It's, it almost reminds me of the question, you know, what's so civil about war anyway? (laughs) well that wraps up a thousand suns in very interesting fashion i think that's a great take on the messenger nubs did this album matter i don't think so i think it matters in the sense that you you get to explore this band that went through these many changes unfortunately you never saw the band really get into where their ultimate goal would be i think the album that follows the hunting party is terrible you know i just Awful. I was so excited about that one. It was like, where are these guys going to go? And it was really bad. It was actually really bad. And that is a factor. You know, whenever we think about, does it matter? You always look at what came before, what came after. What came before was Minutes to Midnight, a record that I like better than 10,000 Sons. 10,000 Sons did its thing and it's, it's memorable. And there's a reason we're talking about it. But then what came after was this directionless thing that Kind of, I don't, I'm not sure Lincoln Park would have made it the long run, even if Chester uh, w- would have stayed uh, alive, because you just wonder, like, where was this whole thing exploring to next? So I don't think it matters in any sort of longevity way. I don't think kids will be listening to this album in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I think for Lincoln Park fans, it's a pivotal moment. And it's, it's something that's part of the catalog that's, that's important. But now, I, w- I wouldn't say it matters on the whole, but it's very interested to see what you would say about one of your albums of the year. T, does it matter? <laughs> no, I actually completely agree with you. I, I don't think it, it matters in that it, it's a rare instance where, you know, this, this record that came out, you know, 10 years ago now, you know, is seen as sort of a, a part of a legacy because this band is no more. So you start to kind of look at what is this band going to be known for? And certainly this was a pivotal moment. I think it's an outstanding album, but this was not 
trademark Lincoln Park. This is not when, you know, uh, when our kids grow up and ask who Lincoln Park was, we're probably not going to play them a thousand suns, at least right away. They're going to hear hybrid theory. They're going to hear Meteora. They're going to hear some of these more classic tracks, I think, that um, really sort of defined their mainstream appeal. You got to respect the pivot. You got to respect the experimentation. And you got to respect the fact that this was a group that had an artistic statement to make and they made it. But I agree with you. I don't think it's an album that matters in terms of longevity or in terms of influence. It perhaps did a little bit show the industry at the time and certainly some bands that had relied on a formula that you don't need to do so in order to um, to to maintain artistic credibility or even establish some commercial credibility. This album did really well. So for those reasons, you know, I think it's something that was fairly important, but in the grand scheme of things, I would not categorize this as an album that uh, particularly matters in the grand scheme of things. All right, buddy, it's the final cut time for Lincoln Park's A Thousand Sons. Are you putting this on the turntable, in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or are you taking it to the for sale bin and selling it in return for a financial profit? What do you got? You know, I had this dilemma recently because I I actually have this album in a, like I mentioned earlier, super deluxe box. It's got the vinyl, the CD. Of course you do. Of course you do. Yes. (laughs) Does it have an OB strip though? It does not have an OB strip. It's got other memorabilia. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, And I'm downsizing still. And so I was like, okay, let's do a critical analysis here. Do I want to keep this? And the answer is yes, but I haven't listened to it a whole lot. I'm going to say collecting dust because I understand why it would be in a, in a collection. And I just kept it in my collection after giving it a top to bottom list. And it was like, okay, this is worthy. And trust me, dude, I've gotten rid of some things that were not, you know, that you would probably be surprised by in terms of artists that I traditionally like. So uh, kept it. Collecting dust for me. I think that again, to Lincoln Park fans, which you and I are, the album has a place. On the whole, I don't think it has longevity, but I can understand why it's in one's collection and I can understand why it was your album of the year. Let's be honest, 2010 wasn't the best year ever for albums. So I get it, you know? So yeah, so T, what are you going to do with an album of the year? I mean, where's your final (laughs) cut? It is collecting dust for me too, Nub. And, you know, obviously it's an album that I love. It's an album that, you know, made the elite album of the year list 10 years ago. I think it's held up okay. And and what I find myself kind of doing now is, you know, when they come for me, waiting for the end, a couple others that I think are real highlights, I'm sort of singling out, you know, and, and attaching to playlists. As far as going start to finish, it's a great one to revisit, but I wouldn't say I'm doing it often. Um, so it's it's certainly part of the collection, but it's one that, you know, I think as time goes on, I'll probably revisit top to bottom less and less. But I do think it's an outstanding effort. I do think at the time it was something unexpected, something you hadn't heard before. And, you know, it's got two or three tracks that are that are in, at least in my catalog are going to be timeless start to finish. You know, it's one that I'm going to put in collecting dust, you know, mostly for the reasons you stated. And some of it holds up extremely well. Some of it holds up. Okay. And, 
you know, top to bottom on this one, I think that's the appropriate place to stick it. All right. Well, let's see where uh, Dolores decides to stick it here on uh, a little bit of In Your Hand. <laughs> What's in your what, head? What kind of segue is that? I don't where, know. Where Dolores decides to, to stick it. I don't know. I have no. <laughs> I have no idea at all. I'm not a professional at this. Go ahead. What do you got, buddy? I love it. I love it. All right. Let's start with uh, "Empty Party Rooms," a song by Minus the Bear, which is off of the album "Infinity Overhead." I'm sad to see Minus the Bear gone. Really loved that band, and that's a good song. Band called Model Engine back from the uh, '90s. It came from a group called Black Eyed Siva. And a song, Rosa Nante. This is obscure stuff, guys. You got to check it out, though. Really, really good band. <laughs> Very underrated. Do you remember Black Eyed Siva T? They were part of that like Christian thing that we've referenced many times. Yeah, I kind of do. Yeah. They were, one of the, they were one of the better bands from that era, for sure. And then recently watched a uh, little documentary on the Canterbury scene in Prague Rock in England in the 70s. So I've been listening to some Caravan and the song Waterloo Lily. That's worth your time, guys. T, what is in your head? There's something about, I don't know what it is lately, but like I've, and you mentioned Van Halen. I think you put I'll wait in your head last, either last episode or the episode before. Pound cake. It's, it's such a effing jam. Like, God, is it? It's so good. Also known as real, real. God, I love it. It's so good. The groove of it, like everybody's playing at a high level. Alex's drumming is awesome. Eddie's guitar work is great. The the pulsating thumping bass from Anthony is awesome. The vocal from Hagar kicks ass. Sammy is letting it fly on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those tracks where like everything's working. And what a way to kick off for unlawful carnal knowledge. I mean, my underrated on Pound Cake, too. It's a great call. The bridge, you know, yeah. let me get on. Let me get it's so uh, good. Uh, yeah. oh, oh man, what a freaking jam. The second is a, a Lindsey Buckingham track called Go Insane. Great track. <laughs> yeah, the nice. 80s. yeah. And the third, a little something different, is by Ian Dury and the Blockheads. This is Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, which is always a great, uh, you know, summer ish track. Summer's winding down already. Can you believe it? But, I know uh, it's crazy, but at least football season's on the way. That's always well, the good part about summer ending. That's good for you. Good for your OH. For me, it's freaking depressing. Let's oh, see. you got a new coach. You'll be all right. Mm, let's hope so, buddy. Hey, I enjoyed this one, man. Thank you for, uh, you know, going through uh, 2010 T's album of the year. Lincoln Park's A Thousand Sons. Great band to talk about. Great band to remember, I guess we need to say. And uh, enjoyed it, buddy. Enjoyed it as always, T, and uh, see you for episode, where are we at, 54 is next? 54 will be next. Wow. Studio 54. Studio 54. You're going to do a disco record? What do you got? Yeah, maybe we'll do like a Gloria Gaynor album. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some Donna Summer. Maybe (laughs) something that Giorgio Mortar contributed to. Everybody thinks he's all cool and everything, right? I'll have to raid Mrs. Nubs collection for the Donna Summer records. Indeed. Indeed. Well, as for uh, uh, the two of us who aren't cool. um, No. no. Yeah. The last uh, hour proves it. (laughs) We will be signing off here on episode 53. Tune in next week for episode 54. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe out there. Everything be okay. And we'll see you next week for Two Twins.
and an album. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.